0: morning. Good to see each of you. Hope you've had a good week. Uh, Thank you to those who have prayed for our family this week. Um, Also good to see Douglas back after being a bit ill. Please continue to pray for him as he's still not 100%. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we begin our time in the Word together. Father we ask for your help this morning As we meditate on Seek to understand your word We ask that your Holy Spirit Work in our hearts Transform our thinking Conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Last Sunday, uh, we began a new series on the Ten Commands, or the Ten Words, as we pointed out. Is the Greek, uh, or the Hebrew there, also in the Greek, the Decalogue. Sometimes I might accidentally refer to it in that way. Decalogue, the Ten Words. Uh, it would be easy, I think, as Christians to discount, um, the importance of the Ten Commandments in an era where we live under the New Covenant. I mean, well, that's, that's old. We don't have to worry too much about that. Uh, But in order to understand the Christian faith, it's crucial that we understand the Jewish faith. Uh, Ten Commandments are absolutely crucial. They're foundational to understanding the Jewish faith. Therefore, to understanding the Christian faith. And we'll talk, God willing, in the, the coming weeks about how the Ten Commandments apply to us in the most direct sense and Uh, A number of other areas, questions about them. But uh, so far, we began the series last week by looking at the first commandment, just digging in. And we looked there in verse 1 through 3 of Exodus chapter 20. We saw the first command uh, that God in offering himself to us in covenant relationship requires our exclusive loyalty. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I don't think we'll spend an entire sermon on each command necessarily. I haven't decided on that. But today I do want to focus in on just the second command. Because it is so foundational to our faith and is so often and so easily misunderstood. So we're in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 we'll pick up beginning in verse 4. If you would follow along, <clears throat> I'll read verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. We'll tackle that first. Uh, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water. Under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So there are two uh, words here in verse 4 that mean idol. The, the words a carved image and the words uh, any likeness. Those are both separate words that refer to idols. Um, and so what is forbidden here in The second commandment is the use of idols in worship. But this could be very easily misunderstood. First, I'll just take a moment to clarify that this does not mean that Jews or Christians are forbidden to carve or capture any image, such as a natural scene or, or a family portrait. Um, There are some groups who have held this over the years that you can't have photographs, you can't make any image whatsoever. Um, But this is a profound misunderstanding of the point of this text. I won't go into all the details, but it is not what this is saying. Uh, Second potential misunderstanding, uh, this is not talking about worshipping other Gods, right? So the first command has already insisted upon loyalty to Yahweh alone. Um, it has ruled out worshiping other gods. So this second command um, here, God is not saying not to worship the gods like Ra or Dagon or Moloch. Rather, He is forbidding the making of any image to represent Yahweh. Do not carve an image that is supposed to in some way depict Yahweh. Yahweh is not to be depicted. In other words, Yahweh doesn't want an avatar. He doesn't want a logo. He doesn't want a mascot. Don't try. That's the point here. Now, the question is why? Why is the very second thing God says, besides, I want your loyalty, is do not make an image or a likeness of me? Well, there are probably a number of reasons. But the biggest one, perhaps, is that anything that we could use to depict him, any animal, any object, anything at all, would depict him... As one of the things he created. So the most fundamental distinction. Between God and everything else. In all the world. Is that God is creator. And everything else. Is his creation. In Romans 1. Paul builds the whole story of mankind. Around this distinction. He's presenting the gospel. And presenting the dilemma. That we as a human kind are in, um, this is what he focuses on, creature versus creator. And our failure to keep a crystal clear distinction between the creator and the created is at the root of all our sin and all our alienation from God. God is not like anything in his creation And therefore we must not seek to depict him as anything in his creation. Verse 4, he says, anything that is in heaven above, or that's in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, right? This is the, the, the ancient, the three classifications in the ancient world. There was the sky and everything up there, everything on the earth, and then the things underneath. And he says, none of those things. Don't use any of those things to try to depict me. Do not make any image or likeness of Yahweh. God is not like anything in his creation. And so don't try to depict him as anything in his creation. To do so, and this is why this is so crucial, to do so is to misrepresent him off the bat, right? Fundamentally. To represent him as any part of his creation is to diminish him, to essentially alter his identity, to smudge the difference between the creator and the created. It is to write a theology, a doctrine of God, that is profoundly mistaken and worse Misleading. In short it is to commit blasphemy. A slander. Against God. Our God. Yahweh. Is wholly separate. From us. He is fundamentally different. From. Us. See we we are. Created, We are created, and that means that we have a, a genesis. We have a beginning. Right? It means that we're finite, that we're limited, that we're derivative. It means our purpose is to be found in the heart of our Creator. Why do you exist? Why did God want you to exist? Why did He create you? It means that our right to exist is derived wholly from the pleasure of the One who made us. That's it. He made us because He wanted us and that is our right to exist. It means that we, that should we fail to be useful in the purpose for which we were created, the Maker has every right to unmake us. Like, like a piece of, of wet pottery, just scrunch us up and just do something else. It's every right to do this. It means all of this and more, but God is not created, right? So that means He has no Genesis. He is uncreated. He is self-existent, right? It means he's infinite. It means he's unlimited. It means he's ultimate. He's not derived from something else. He's, He's ultimate. It means his purpose is to be all that he is forever for his own joy in himself. And that's it. It means his right to exist is inherent, derived from no one and nothing outside of his own Pleasure means that he is not a means to an end, such that he can be useful for some external purpose, but is rather in himself the sole end, the goal of all things. Who, were it possible to unmake him, would be to unmake all that ever was, is Or could ever be. God is uncreated. He is the creator. This distinction must never, never, ever be blurred. That's the point of the second commandment. All our human maladies can be summed up in the failure to p- properly grasp the implications of this distinction. Let's take a moment to go over to Romans chapter 1 and look at that. I want you to see how much this concept permeates and structures Paul's thinking about man's problem. This is the very, very beginning of Paul's introduction to the gospel in a systematic theological way. He states his thesis in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. And then as soon as he finishes stating his thesis in verse 16 and 17, he now moves on in verse 18 to beginning to lay out the theological situation we're in and the reason the gospel is necessary. Notice these themes of creator, created. Here we go. Verse 18, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Okay, invisible, so not carved, no likeness, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The creation of the world is the point at which this became crystal clear. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right, so we, we have this development and in it Paul's main point is they, they failed... To obey the second commandment. They failed to keep a clear distinction of the fact that there is a creator and everything else is created and there's fundamentally a difference. You, you must acknowledge, you must honor God as the creator. You must, you must be thankful to him as the creator. You can't smudge the line between the two. So, The second command is is not, strictly speaking, uh, about idolatry. Rather, it's about the cause of idolatry. It's about a rejection of God as he has revealed himself to us. Uh, It's about a desire for him to be a God who is more like us. like one of the created things, one of the creatures, but he is not like us. He is in an entirely different category. We must not depict him or view him or conceive of him as if he were like us, created. So, In order to try to apply this to to us in our own thinking today, um, if you want to know, if you've allowed your view of God to shift into a God of your own making, a God in your own image, in the image of the creation rather than the creator, here's how you find out. You read the Bible and you look for God in it. And as you do that, if God doesn't look like the God you worship, if he sticks out as odd again and again, um, you're worshiping a God who doesn't exist. right? So reading the Bible, which is the revelation of God to us, will constantly challenge our view of God as a person, Himself, it, we will slide into thinking God's just and we will, we will become so clear on that point that we will start to forget His mercy or His love. And we'll, we'll come across parts of the Bible that will challenge that and say, well, He's not, he's not just in the way you're thinking of just. He's, he's just, but that doesn't mean He's not also gracious. And, and, and then we'll, we'll do the other. We'll be over here. Well, God loves, God loves, God loves. Well, He would never do anything mean. And then you'll come across passages where God is mean, where God exercises His rights as creator and, and you will be challenged. Well, God is not quite like this. You'll, you'll have to adjust your view of God to make it more accurate, more true. Reading the Bible will correct and adjust your view of God so that you do not end up in idolatry without even knowing it. This is one of the reasons it's so crucial to be reading and meditating on God's Word often. Like ideally, daily. Just a lot of time looking at God's Word and looking for God. What is he like? Now we pick up with the text in Exodus 20 again, which tells us why we must not worship images or likenesses of him. We'll start at the beginning of verse 5. Um, you should not bow down to them or serve them. For, here's here's the reason, for I am the Lord, uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now remember, the, the Lord there is all caps, small caps, so that means that's a translation of God's name. So for I, Yahweh, your God. I'm a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But, verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. First, there's an implication here that the worshipping of Images and likenesses of God, of Yahweh, inevitably leads to worshipping other gods. God says he's jealous. He's impassioned when we worship such images. Not, not because we intend initially to be worshipping other gods. This is clearly talking about making an image of Yahweh. But because to worship an image of Yahweh is inherently necessarily to make Yahweh something other than Yahweh. And therefore to worship something other than Yahweh. In other words, to worship an image of Yahweh leads inevitably to idolatry. God says, I'm jealous of your worship. You see this? He thinks he deserves our worship. God thinks he's entitled to it. And he's dead right. God does deserve our worship. He is entitled to it because he's not like anything in heaven or earth or under the earth. When we give our worship away to worthless idols, it bothers him, makes him upset. Now the next phrase, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation, uh, could be understood in several ways. Ways. Um, And I'm just going to lay out three uh, that are most perhaps common. Uh, The first one would be the family curse approach. Basically, it treats this as random. For some reason, um, God judges children for the sins of their father. And Various groups in Christianity have latched on to this notion to argue that everything from alcoholism to homosexuality to mental illness are a result of a curse which is passed down through generations. And such groups often use questionable methods to remove such curses, such as casting out ceremonies and, and such like. And I would say beware of such ideas. Uh, that's not what this is saying i'm quite convinced uh, the second view is what i'm calling the the patriarchal view the idea here is that the sin is uh, visited on multiple generations because those generations are currently living right so you have households in the, in the patriarchal world that that most of the world was for most of history you had you had a patriarch and you had his children and potentially his grandchildren, maybe even his great-grandchildren, all living in the same, basically we might call it a farm. They might not have the same house, but it's the same kind of family unit. And it includes the family, it includes uh, servants or slaves, potentially some add-ons, widows, orphans, whatever, but that's the household. So if the leader of the household pursues other gods or pursues uh, images of God, he, he leads generations into sin, um, so it is possible that that is what it means. the The third approach here would be the individual choice approach. And this view holds that the point here is not that God actually visits the sins on multiple generations, but that He will judge each successive generation that chooses to commit the sin. In other words, just because Dad broke this command and led the family astray doesn't mean that the children get a free pass. Well, he broke the covenants, so now we can just do what we want. Rather, each generation that breaks this command will individually be held accountable for doing so. In other words, this command is with the nation, and one person's choice to break it doesn't justify somebody else's. Now, I honestly don't know which view is correct. Um... I'm confident that the first view is dangerously false. I struggle with how both of the latter views account for the text itself. Um, I can't unfortunately give a decisive answer right now on my view, Um, but what I can do is show you the primary point here, which is clear. The biggest point that I think we're supposed to get here is the contrast between three and four generations and thousands. Verse 6 there, it says thousands. And probably that means thousands of generations. Right. So the ESV just says thousands, um, but I'm quite confident that, that the meaning is thousands of generations versus two or three generations. And so the contrast there becomes the point. The point is that God is jealous and will judge violations of his covenant with his people and that what he really wants to do is show set, Steadfast love. Covenant love. That's what he wants to do and he will do it for forever if they give him half a chance. So How does this apply to us today? Well, we must always be clear on the difference between the creator and the creation. We've got to maintain this distinction. We've got to be crystal clear on it. We must honor God, as Romans 1 verse 21 says, honor him as the creator and never treat him like his Creation. We must give thanks to Him as the Creator. Here's the thing. All the gifts He gives us are the things that we're tempted to worship instead of Him. And so it is absolutely crucial if we want to avoid idolatry, avoid misunderstanding God, never to worship or misunderstand which things are the gift, and which things are the giver. And here he says, be thankful to him, because thankfulness says, he gave it all. Right? When you're thankful, you remember, this is not God, this is the gift of God. Thankfulness maintains the distinction. Everything in the, the world, everything in the world, everything in the universe, is the gift. And God is the giver. Thankfulness Keeps them separate so that we do not fall into idolatry. We must not worship God through visualizations of our imagination. Right? We can't make pictures of God in our mind. This is talking about literal visualizations, but I I do think it's possible to even create uh, one, one theologian that I came across, put it like this. If you create a picture of God so complete that it answers all the questions, even that the Bible doesn't answer, you now have a, an image of God that is not who He is. we have taken out the parts that leave us wondering. We must not worship God through visualizations of our imagination, but rather... We must worship him precisely, precisely as he has revealed himself to us through the words of Scripture. And come back to this. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he showed them what? We saw last week. There's a mountain, it's shaking. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets, there's all sorts of hullabaloo. But there is no picture of God. Nothing to see that you think, oh, that's God. There's just the earth not coping with him being there. How do they know God's there? They hear him speaking these words. And Exodus doesn't point that out very clearly, but over in Deuteronomy, it's spelled out very clearly. They did not see any form. They only heard the words that he said. Our view of God must not be what we can see. Visualizations. The, the construct of our imagination, but rather we must worship Him precisely as He has revealed Himself to us in the words of Scripture. Let's go to this God in prayer. We are amazed... Father, that you have revealed yourself to us at all. Uh, We are troubled by how easily we reduce you to the level of your creation and hence completely lose sight of you. Slip into idolatry. We ask this morning that you would cause us to see you with spiritual eyes. That we would hear the words of Scripture. That we would listen to what you say is true and believe it. And that by doing this, that we would maintain an understanding and a view of you that is accurate, that is precise. That is you as you truly are rather than you as the culture wishes you were or you as our nature wishes you were or even you as our casualness and our laziness and our carelessness would allow you to become. Rather that we would Always see you as who you have revealed yourself to be. That we would flee from idolatry, that we would honor you as God, that we would be thankful to you as God, as creator of all that is. Pray Father that you would be honored in our hearts, We thank you that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a stunning picture of what you are like, not in physicality, but in your nature. Help us to gaze long and hard in his face, which is a metaphor for in your nature. Bless us now as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.